Okay. Just uh, love to start just by reading a psalm. And uh, this one's, I'll just read the beginning of it. This one's Psalm 19. So why don't you, maybe it seems to be the ENC liturgy, place your hand on your heart. (laughs) Quick learner. And um, it's discussing with John last night. These bodily postures are so uh, significant, even though they're really simple. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech and they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the earth. Father, thank you so much that this morning it's we're in an atmosphere, a, a physical environment in which creation is saying something about you. Lord, we don't want to miss the message, miss the miss the thing that creation is saying. But Lord, actually, we're here to add to it, to to join our speech, our words our songs to the speechless and wordless praise that heaven is giving, that the creation is giving and the heavens are, are declaring. And so, Father, I pray that everything we do today would be an addition to, adding to, augmenting this creation's praise. And I pray that my words, simple though they are, would add. And I pray, God, that the cloud of your glory would come even now rest upon us God I I know that you're near thank you that you're always near but you're particularly near today and near to the brokenhearted I pray God that you would just minister deeply healing in this place so let your kingdom come we pray this in your name amen amen well it is so good to be here I was saying to somebody this morning it feels like even in 12 hours or so, we've, uh, we've had kind of three, three days worth of rest and recuperation. I don't know whether that's just because we're not with our children. <laughs> I think that's probably highly likely. Uh, but you are, you are a restful bunch. Thank you for your welcome. I say that. I mean, I, I woke up reasonably early and, and there was sort of streams of you coming back from a swim or a run. Uh, it's the kind of thing I would have done, um, but then I turned 40 and my body started to fall apart. And so I was, uh, in, in the end, just sitting and watching you all do it. Anyway, Blaise Pascal is a name some of you may know. He was an influential scholar in the 17th century. He was a scientist and a mathematician, and he became an inventor and a later somebody who uh, became an apologist, someone whose job it was to defend and explain Christian faith in his generation. He was, he was famous he was a Frenchman. He was born in France in 1623. And he was the second of three children. He had two older, older sisters. His mother died when he was three years of age. And a few years later, his, fa- his father made the decision to move the family to Paris. Now, Pascal was clearly a prodigy. He was extremely intelligent. His father recognized this quite, quite young. Uh, and so he decided to homeschool 
Pascal, which, which it has to be said, worked quite well. And by the age of 16, Pascal was already making significant mathematical breakthroughs, as you do, you know, as a 16-year-old. By 19, he'd invented his own mechanical calculator. And uh, he, it, was, it was quite a significant side hustle for him. So he, he began to sell them all over Europe, 50 or so units of these he sold to wealthy families in Europe. And during his 20s and 30s, um, you know, this guy's quite an overachiever, really. He did important work with mathematical probability, made important discoveries in a, a few areas uh, which are way beyond my competence, related to fluids and pressure, the internet says, so I'll just leave it there, I think. But in 1646, his father fell and broke a hip, which was at that point in time a devastating injury. And this is where Pascal began to encounter faith. The two doctors who were looking after his father were both strong Christians. They had a really strong faith. And this made a mark on Blaise Pascal. It, uh, the, he, he went through, I guess, uh, what was later termed by various of his biographers, an intellectual conversion. He saw the credibility of faith in the life of these doctors, and it made a mark on him. But it didn't kind of stick. It, it kind of impacted him, but it didn't stick. And uh, he went after that into what was known as his worldly period. <laughs> but then sometime later, he, was, he found himself, his father had died, and he found himself poor and alone. Both of his sisters had been married and and the family estate had been divided into three, and so there wasn't really enough for him to live on, and he was lonely. His sisters had moved away. And so on November the 23rd in 1654, Pascal was at home alone. And the sun had set, and he was probably most likely preparing for sleep, when suddenly, around 10.30 at night, he had a vision of God. And here's what he wrote in his journal. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past ten until about half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. He goes on for a little while longer. Now he sowed this journal entry into the pocket of his own jacket, which he kept with him for the rest of his life, and it was only discovered after his death. As a result of this powerful encounter, this vision of God, Pascal gave up his mathematical career, which was a loss, it has to be said, to the world of mathematics, but again to the rest of us. He devoted himself to theology and apologetics. In his mid-30s, he decided to begin this defense of the Christian faith, which is called the defense of Christian religion, which he spent most of the rest of his life working on. But he became sick and unable to finish it. And on August 18, 1662, he fell into convulsions 
received anointing of the sick, and the next morning, at the age of 39, he died. His last words, may God never abandon me. Now, why am I telling you this story? Some of you, of course, will have heard it, I'm sure, but I'm telling you partly because it's inspiring. This is the kind of story I love to read and hear. I love just uh, taking in biographies of of Christian people through the ages. It's, It's inspiring. But I think what it speaks of is is this idea that if we're going to become a church on fire one of the key things we have to access explore and desire is a renewed vision of God Blaise Pascal is an example of somebody whose vision of God was renewed now he had had as I said to you he had had his intellectual conversion you know faith was coherent to him it made sense to him But that alone, that was, we might say, philosophers might say that was necessary but not sufficient. He needed that. Faith needed to be credible. Apologetics was something. Encountering faith in somebody else's life was something. But for this, this conversion to go the whole way, it had to go from the head and to the heart. It had to engage the totality of his person. It had to be, he had to be all into it. It had to... Be all in him. That is, I think, a biblical vision of conversion. It's a biblical vision of renewal. It is a biblical vision of the church on fire. The church on fire, which is what we began to talk about last night, is a church that is renewed in its experience of God. Experience and vision of God. And this is something, in fact, we don't just observe in the story of somebody like Blaise Pascal. We explore this and see this in Scripture all the way through. The Bible is full of examples of people who meet with God. They see God. And the seeing changes everything else. And my example for us today, where we're going to camp out, and if you've got a Bible, you might want to open it with me. If you'd like to, uh, if you've got a physical Bible... You can go first in the line for coffee if you've got a, a digital one. <laughs> well, you'll get a coffee as well. Bless you. Bless God. This is Isaiah chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, new to faith, Isaiah's uh, just a little under halfway through my Bible. One of the bigger books, one of the longer books. There's a decent chance if you open up the Bible, do a bit of Bible roulette, there's a de- decent chance you'll actually find Isaiah if you open halfway. And chapter 6 is just after chapter 5 and before chapter 7. So here's what we read. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, in words that we've used this morning multiple times in different songs, holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. Now speaking here again in the first person, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined. Other versions of this say, I'm undone. 
Love that phrase. We'll come back to that. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. So where's this all happening? This encounter, this vision that's not unlike Pascal's vision leads to a, a similar shift in the prophet's life as, as Pascal has. This is happening in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, Isaiah was a prophet and he's close to the court of King Uzziah. So he's somebody who's well established in the life of Israel. He's someone with influence. And so what's happening with the death of the king is probably uh, causing broad um, instability, let's say, in the whole life of Israel. These moments of transition uh, in life, in the political life of any uh, nation, are significant moments of instability. And how much more would this be the case for Isaiah? Because he's somebody who's in and around that environment. So he here is in a moment of personal instability, which is also a moment of wider uh, national instability. How many of you know we are in a moment like that? In our, this is what I was saying last night. We're in a, such a moment in our own national uh, life. And as I tried to demonstrate last night, also in the life of our, of, of our broader culture, as I said, this is not just an era of change. It's a change of eras. We're in a moment where it seems like things feel more fragile perhaps than they have maybe at any other time since the Second World War. We have lived in a moment of significant stability and abundance. And it feels like that uh, the veneer, let's say, of that stability is being poked at in significant ways. And, and as I said last night, I think we intuit that. I think we feel that. Now, as I was saying to somebody at the end of the session, they said it's terrifying, isn't it? And it's also exciting. See, moments of transition, whether they be personal, whether they be national, whether they be moments of transition for the church, are always moments of, of significant opportunity. I have never felt more excited about the future of the church than I do now. I feel very hopeful about the future of Christian faith in our nation, more hopeful than I've ever felt. And yet, things feel fragile in various different ways. And Isaiah must have felt that. Both great challenge and great opportunity. He's feeling shaken, presumably by these shifting foundations. He's already begun his prophetic ministry, but he's, a gap, he's about to receive a new foundation for his life. And it's going to come as he is further shaken. Here's what we read. I saw the Lord. In the, in the year that King Isaiah died, died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. So in the context of shifting eras and Isaiah's own personal vulnerability, he has a vision of God. And it's a multi-sensory vision of God. Here, here's what we read. Isaiah sees, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. This, he's transported into a different dimension of reality. This dimension of reality, heaven, is always there. Do you know the way that the human eye works is that information, I'm not an expert, just to say, so if you are, please correct me if I'm wrong later. If you're an ophthalmologist or similar, please come and give me a lesson. But the human eye receives data and gives it to your brain and your brain interprets that data. That struck me the other day that if we had a different kind of eye, we might see different kind of data. Let me explain that in another way. What we see as reality isn't all that there is. It's just all that our brains can cope with. 
What we see is not all that there is. It may well be, it, it probably is the case that, that, that there are angels all around us. Now, we can't see that because our eyes and our brains aren't able to interpret that data. But if there was another being present who could interpret that data, who had different eyes or a different brain, that would become visible. Heaven, therefore, is not some distant place that can't be accessed. It's right here, right now. That's what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's just that it's not visible to the human eye, usually, in a simple way. Does that make sense? Now, what's happening, therefore, is when Isaiah has this vision, he's not transported to some distant place beyond the universe. Einstein, after all, just told us the, inf- the, the, the universe is infinite. He couldn't even get beyond it if he tried. He's accessing a reality that is all around him, but he's, it's just being unveiled. And what he sees in this moment is God on his throne. And God is so big and so immense that the train of his robe, that is the furthest reach of his robe, fills the entirety of the temple as God is on his throne. This is what he sees. It's a new vision of God that is absolutely incredibly and, and incredibly important for this moment you see the king is has been dethroned in this moment of instability and so the first thing as I sees is a God who inhabits the throne he doesn't just inhabit the throne he overflows from the throne how stabilizing would that vision have been for Isaiah in this moment of instability secondly we, we find that he hears He hears angels calling out to one another again and again, describing the identity of that which he has already seen. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. He hears. He hears the identity of who God is. Again, this is the second sense engaged. Thirdly, he feels. He feels. It says the the pillars of the temple shake. The threshold of the room shakes. He feels the earthquake, again drawing from that metaphor last night. He feels this earthquake as heaven itself struggles to contain the holiness of this God who fills the temple. And fourthly, I'm reaching a little bit here, but go with me. He smells. It says the whole temple was filled with smoke. Yeah, sometimes you do this, don't you? Certainly in Nottingham, you know, you walk your dog late at night and you can kind of smell somebody using a log burning stove way before you see the smoke you smell the smoke no doubt Isaiah's having this experience here all of his senses most of his senses at least are being engaged this is a multi-sensory experience a vision an unveiling of who God is a vision of the true king he sees the mo- in this moment of instability the throne that really counts now the biblical word for this would be revelation What is a revelation? It is an encounter with God that shifts our perspective entirely. Rowan Williams, theologian, puts it like this. Revelation is essentially the gift of a wisdom that opens up fresh possibilities for human action. A new wisdom leading to the possibility for new action. Or, he says more accurately, that restores possibilities lost by human sin and ignorance. God deposits a new wisdom in these moments of encounter and revelation and vision. These are all synonyms. Which make possible new human action. Which restore possibilities which which have been lost to us because of the state of sin that we all live in. Revelation does two things. And this this is the message really. 
Revelation enables us to see God differently. This is what we need. We need to see God differently. However you see God, there's more. I love it when Paul says in, is it in 1 Corinthians, you know, we, we see as through a mirror darkly. We're, we're pretty dim. If you're anything like me, you're quite dim. Largely dim, perhaps, if you're especially like me. You, you don't see God as he should be seen. And even that which you see, you tend to forget. <laughs> I can't impress upon Well, I'm actually trying to impress upon you. <laughs> I can't impress upon you enough the importance of your vision of God. This is something to which we need to return again and again. We need a bigger vision of God. Our fears are largely big because God is small. If God were bigger, our fears would be much smaller. So just as a brief aside, anxiety, which I spoke about last night, which is just, it's part of the human condition. If you're anxious, don't beat yourself up. You're human. But it is fundamentally, before it's a psychological problem, before it's a medical problem, it is all of those things. But it is actually a theological issue. We need a bigger God. If you have, as many of us do, fear of man, fear of others, you care too much what other people think. The biblical solution to that, Jesus says, is fearing God. Having a bigger vision of God. Not being afraid of God's punishment, that's not what fear of God means. But it means having a bigger view of God. And I think that one of the things God wants to do this weekend is to give that new vision, that renewed vision. I have a friend called Claire. Uh, Claire. Claire's Australian. She's actually now moved back to Australia. But when we lived in London, before we moved to Nottingham, Claire... Claire was in, uh, in London too, and, and she's an atheist by background, and she never had any faith, and her husband's a very committed atheist. He's now uh, a secular humanist, he said to me the other year, so I think that's progress. <laughs> I don't know why or how, but I, I'm taking it as progress. Anyway, Claire one day, uh, Claire's, Claire's kind of an adventurous soul. So she, she likes to, she's my age, you know, she's kind of middle-aged, but she likes to spend time sitting in trees. Lying in trees. So and one day she was lying in a tree, as you do, uh, as I don't do, <laughs> but as she does. And uh, she, as an atheist lying in a tree, she just had an overwhelming sense of the perfection of creation. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit, I would say, and now, she wouldn't have said then, but she would now say, just revealed to her the truth of the fact that the world is created, that there must be a God. And so she then had a problem because she didn't know anything about God and she was an atheist who believed in God and that put her in a point of significant tension and so she reached out to a, a church that she'd visited once or twice, a church that we were at and she sent you know, the, an email to info at dot 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 you know you never know if those emails were ever checked <laughs> I'm not sure they were ever checked at Trinity Church but anyway, <laughs> thankfully they were and it was farmed out to probably the least occupied of any of the pastoral team which happened to be me and I sat with Claire and just heard her story and just began a, a friendship which has dramatically changed her life. It's changed our lives. She is somebody whose life God has completely rearranged. This vision of God has shifted her entire, entire life. Her past has been redefined. Her present uh, is full of God. Her future is, you know, she is now, she's studied theology. She, her whole life 
has been completely shifted. It's been an amazing thing to witness. You know, we become, she's a woman on fire. Uh, and uh, she's be- we become a church on fire when we get a renewed vision for God. God is king. And we choose to allow him to displace us on the throne of our lives. There can be no real progress in the kingdom without a new vision of God. And this isn't a one-time thing. It happens repeatedly. We must always and every day be allowing God to renew our vision of him. This is the new foundation. Revival is not Revival is not God doing something new. It's us rediscovering the thing that's always available to us in God. When we live as if it really is the case that he is who he says he is, things begin to shift. It's, always not, dram- it's not always dramatic and mystical. It's not always up a tree. You know, sometimes God moves in, oh, certainly in my life, God has not moved in that way. I have begged and pleaded for God to move in my, I've begged and pleaded for God to knock me over, to, to give me a few hours frothing on the ground or, you know, whatever, just blast me, God. It has never happened. Why not? I don't know. I'm holding my receipt and I want a refund when I get to heaven if I don't have that experience before my death. But it's never happened for me. It's been much more sedate, much less powerful, or at least obviously powerful. And that has been something of a disappointment to me. But there we go. But I, I ended up at the end of, uh, having grown up in the church, I ended up at the end of university really having made a mess of my life. Principally because I had, uh, I'd ended up seated on the throne of my life in a whole series of ways. And I found faithfulness to the gospel uh, more difficult than I'd priced in. And so I reached for a short circuit to make things feel better. Now, in my, in my life, that typically is, that, that short circuit has been pleasure. And often when we're struggling, we reach for pleasure because it just stops, it numbs the, the feelings. Uh, it numbs the negative feelings. And so that's where I went with that. And, and God, you know, in, in the Bible, God's judgment is often described as God giving us up to that thing. In other words, he lets us have the fruit of whatever it is we're seeking. And he gave me up to that in order to co- call me to repentance, which is what happened. And I kind of made a, a mess of everything, run myself into the ground. And I opened myself up to God. Actually, we arrived at a, in London and went to St. Mary's where John and Joe had just moved on from at that point. And it was in that moment that I discovered grace for the first time. So in other words, what I'm saying is my vision of God had never really incorporated grace. Now that's a pretty devastating thing to say for somebody who'd grown up in the church. And I'd experienced the Holy Spirit and everything else, but really up until that point, and this is a a besetting sin, it's something I constantly fall back into, but I'd lived as if my relationship with God, the quality of my relationship with God um, rested on the strength of my performance for God. It rested on what I could do, what I did, my output, my faithfulness. And by giving up, I came to a point where I realized that that really wasn't the way at all because God was still there when I abandoned him. Grace, grace, grace was what I learned. This is something of what Isaiah learns as well. So firstly, we receive in this revelation a new vision of God. For me, that was a vision of God who is fundamentally all the way, God is love and grace all the way down. You know, I I knew there was grace, but then beneath the grace, 
There's like a PE teacher with really short shorts and a whistle. You know, like blasting, beasting you on the beach in the morning. That's what God's like beneath the love and the grace. That's put an image in some of your minds that you're going to struggle to, to get rid of. No, God is love and grace all the way down. We need a new vision of God, but within that, and, and, and I'm going to do this in five minutes, this next bit, which is we need not just a new vision of him, but that new vision of him releases to us a new vision of ourselves. And this is the gift. This is the gift that a vision of God gives. And look at the vision that God gives Isaiah. And Amy's going to speak into this in some other ways just a bit later. Listen to this, verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. I'm undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. My eyes have seen the king. There's the vision of God. I'm undone. So the vision that God gives Isaiah causes him, more than causes releases him to look at himself in different ways. I am undone. You know, Isaiah is about to, in the subsequent chapters, go on pronouncing woe. That's his prophetic commission. Pronouncing woe to the people of Israel and woe to a series of nations. But first, before he's commissioned to do that, he has to see the woe in his own life. Before he can be useful to God, he must first be undone. Now this is not self-hatred or self-pity, quite the opposite. This is a realistic resizing of Isaiah in, in relation to God. It's not that he sees himself negatively here. It's just that in relation to God, he recognizes he's nothing. This is not self-hatred. It's really distinct from that. You need to hear that. But this is the context in which God always reveals himself. He shows his greatness. And in light of his greatness, we recognize our smallness. And just as Isaiah is recognizing his smallness, look what happens. The Lord sends an angel to come and touch his mouth. His sins are atoned for. This is the gospel movement in each of our lives. We see God's greatness. We recognize our smallness. We come before God in repentance. And as we do, God touches our lips. And atones for our sin. This is the core of the gospel. This is the moment of salvation. You and I can do nothing. This is the vision. This is the fruit of the vision of God. That God would release into our lives. An understanding of his greatness. In which we can understand and be free to be small parts of his great story. And as we do recognize how deeply we are loved. As we see the cross. And how our sins have been atoned for. Salvation comes not as we muscle up. But as we recognize our place before him in worship. This is both an event and a process. What does being undone look like? Well for me, I spoke earlier about my moment of personal renewal in my 20s. That time in in London. Well we went to California a little bit after that. I think we mentioned that last night. And uh, I have to say, a couple of years after my kind of coming to faith and receiving the grace of God and understanding the grace of God, I felt pretty good about myself. And I thought I was pretty much all the way there. And I was ready to be unleashed on the world in, uh, in a, a global ministry, which I'd very humbly 
put on uh, social media. It was just beginning social media then, but I thought I could use this for the gospel. This would be great. <laughs> and then I went to California, and actually what happened was quite, it was almost instantly, actually, I came to the end of myself in another way, and it didn't take long. Basically, I, 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 I encountered the depth of my fear. See, I thought I was reasonably confident and competent, and in, in, my, in our case, it was in the, in the context of ministry because that's where we were placed. God gave us a series of opportunities to, to do some ministry things. And I'd been at St. Mary's basically telling other people what to do, but with no skin in the game. And then God handed us a ministry and every so often a microphone, and I just collapsed in fear. I remember when I would be asked to preach, it would be, it, let's say they gave us two weeks' notice. Those two weeks in advance would be hell. And I would be almost entirely unable to function. I, I, it was absolutely awful. But God sent an angel to touch my lips. As I was undone, recognized the depth of my ineptitude and incapability to even function without God. God sent us into the study of a kind and powerful woman called Reverend Kathy. And in her study in Newport Beach, California, which is pretty much the best place that you could have in a healing prayer, <laughs> we took a journey with the Spirit of Jesus through my past. God undid me. And this is absolutely tied to this vision of God. He undid me and began to heal the past. And in so doing, commissioned me for a new future. That work of undoing has never stopped. God has never, never done me up fully. I'm hoping that when I am blasted by the Holy Spirit, that's go I'm going to be there. And then you'll see me on Instagram. You just watch. It's 11 o'clock. Let me land this. I don't know where you're at in this journey. Perhaps you're just getting going in your journey of faith. Can I suggest to you a good prayer would be this. God, reveal yourself to me. Give me a bigger vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Be all else but naught to me, save that thou art. Be everything to me, God. God, would you be so big to me that I don't even, I don't even have time to think about myself. God, would you be so big in my life that I would constantly, without even trying to, practice the art of self-forgetfulness. That I'd be available to other people because you are so big. Not because I'm even trying to be humble and self-deprecating and British, but just because all that I have in my field of vision is you. Can I suggest that if you're beginning your journey of faith, you start there? But perhaps you've already seen him. Perhaps like me, you're a little bit long in the tooth in faith and you've been going maybe for a decade or two, maybe a bit longer. Can I suggest to you it's time to get on your knees again and ask for a different vision? I have recognized at this point, seven years into church planting and all that other stuff, with children between 13 and 8, I cannot go forward in what God is calling me to without a new vision. I have reached the end of the line with what God has revealed to me. For the, for the authority that I think God is calling us into in this next season, there has to be a re renewed vision. And maybe you're at that point too. You say, God, I need more. There has to be more for me. Maybe for you, uh, it's time to ask that question. But maybe for both of us, the parallel, the, the, corre the correlation, the, the joining together of this 
and the revealing of this is going to come through your undoing. We'll talk about this maybe a little bit later in our seminar if anyone comes to that. Do you know that dealing with your past and dealing with your pain is not a luxury? It is the main and the plane of progress in the kingdom. And it's the vision of God that enables us to face the past with confidence and face into the future with courage. Let me close in prayer. God, I thank you for your grace on us this morning. Thank you that you are so holy. But your holiness is not something we we need to be afraid of. For you are awesome. In the true sense of the word, God, you are terrible. You are great and majestic and holy. But God, you are holy in your goodness. You are holy in your love. And my prayer for us, every one of us in this room, wherever it is we are in the journey of knowing you and being known by you, that you would reveal yourself. And I pray for the grace over this weekend to encounter you in ways that shift foundations, that places on solid rock, and that releases into the future that you have for us. Holy Spirit, even over coffee, just begin to shift some things around. Undo some things. Undo some things, God. Would you give us the grace to be undone this weekend? The grace to be ruined. Lord, I pray for tears and for snot and for undoing across this weekend. God, I pray that we would be undone. God, I pray for, I ask now for generational uh, uh, strongholds to be broken, for generational traumas to be healed, that that the kingdom would come into the future even of our nation because some things are undone in this room that, that have been kept in as skeletons in closets. And I just think, I just pray God, I ask for healing of physical conditions related to some of those things because some of those deep things are undone. I said this last night, Father, you, the Spirit searches the deep things of God. Well, Spirit, we give you opportunity now to search the deep things of the human spirit and to heal them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Five minutes late, but that's not so bad for me. So why don't we go and grab coffee, and, uh, and we'll return here when? 20 past 15 minutes.